Hello there and happy Easter from the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as, why did I sing all those musical numbers? I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane. Today we pick back up with part two of both our interview with Father Timothy Gallagher and Kara's and my discussion of the Prince of Egypt. In case you missed part one, be sure to check out our previous episode, episode 87. The Father Gallagher interview covers the beginning until about minute 16, and the Prince of Egypt segment starts at about 16.30 until the end. So without further ado... With an uplift of heart, she finds herself saying, Lord, you'll be with me. However this goes, I know you'll be with me and you'll see me through this. Now you can see that that is an experience on the level of grace, on the level of the spiritual life. So that would be spiritual consolation. And that's what we're talking about in discernment of spirits. Now, we don't have to over-insist on the distinction, which is important, but we don't have to over-insist upon it either because very often in God's providence, healthy non-spiritual consolation, like the time spent with a friend, uh, is the space into which God may infuse the grace of spiritual consolation. So just feeling happy about that uh, communication with the friend, the person sits down to pray the rosary, let's say, and finds that uh, he or she feels God's closeness and finds the prayer nourishing and encouraging. Right, because even in, say, the parables, uh, Jesus uses natural goods to illustrate spiritual goods. I'm thinking of when he's talking to the disciples about you who know how to give good gifts would never give your child a a scorpion when he asks for an egg or something like that. These are natural goods and not necessarily vehicles for spiritual consolation, but they can be. They can show that you as a parent love your child. Mm -hmm. But what Ignatius, uh, having said that, is specifically speaking about is uplifting, happy, joyful experiences on the spiritual level in our prayer, in our relationship with God, in the life of the sacraments, in living our vocations. And on the other hand, discouraging experiences in the spiritual life when we don't have energy for prayer and we don't feel God's closeness. And we could be, if I can say it reverently, tempted to let prayer go or diminish uh, in various ways. Now, these ups and downs are going on all the time in the spiritual life. That's really what Ignatius is talking about in the rules for discernment that you mentioned, Andrew. So for somebody who is trying to find a spiritual director but has never tried it before, what's the best way practically for them to go about that? Should they just, after Mass on some Sunday, walk up to their priest and say, hey, do you know of anybody who would be willing to offer me spiritual direction? A person could do that. So there are no universal norms on this, but I'll just make a suggestion. What I would invite people to do is as you live your life in the church, so you, you go to confession, you experience the priest as a confessor, you go to mass, you experience a priest as he celebrates mass and as he preaches. If you find yourself getting a sense as you live your life in the church, maybe there are other trained spiritual directors, you know, lay, but trained in spiritual direction. As you live your life in the church, you may get a sense that Well, they all seem like good people, but somehow I feel like I could speak with this one more freely. And you have a sense that this person is competent and wise as a spiritual director and can offer really helpful spiritual direction. What you might do is just approach this person and ask, not yet for spiritual direction, but could I meet with you? I just have some questions about the spiritual life that I I would really like to talk about with you. 
most of the time, the person you approach is going to say yes to that. And you set a time, you meet with the person. If you find that it really didn't seem helpful or that just somehow the chemistry didn't just seem right, okay, nothing lost, probably something beneficial from that. But let's say you find that it seems really helpful and you find yourself feeling really free to speak with this person and well understood and well accompanied. What you might do uh, as you conclude is just ask, uh, if I ever needed to speak with you again, would you be open to it? And most of the time, the person will say yes. And then when the time seems right, uh, you meet a second time with the person. And if the experience of the first meeting repeats and you find yourself further confirmed that this really seems like a good fit, at that point, you could ask the person for a spiritual direction. Now, it's easier for this person to respond at this point because you're not just somebody who walked up to him or her, you know, kind of out of the blue, he or she knows you now. If the person has the time, the person is much more likely to want to be available for that. Finally, I would say on this, don't hesitate to ask. You may find yourself saying, well, there's, let's say a priest who is, I know would be excellent for spiritual direction, but he's so busy. I can't really ask him because I don't want to impose on his time. Let him take responsibility for his time. Uh, You always honor any potential spiritual director when you make that request. And if the person can't do it, he or she will gently just let you know that and you haven't lost anything, but you don't have to take responsibility for that person's time. Let that person do it. So I hope you'd feel free you know, in, uh, in pursuing this. I know I need to hear that sort of thing because I'm always very hesitant to ask anything of a parish priest who's got you know five other people in line to talk to him. So we've talked a lot on this podcast and other episodes about the call to love, but not so much about the call aspect of that particularly. I know you've written a book specifically on discernment of spirits and marriage in which it sounds way more complicated to try to discern the call to love when somebody else is also discerning with you. How do you approach that in the book for married couples? So the book that I wrote, Discernment of Spirits and Marriage, as the title says, is about discerning these ups and downs in the spiritual life, spiritual consolation and spiritual desolation, as this teaching of Ignatius is lived out in the married vocation. So in the book, you have a couple, Mark and Anne, whom I've created to represent what is, I think, pretty common experience. And uh, we watch them go through these ups and downs and work together and sometimes struggle together, but find in Ignatius 14 rules for the discernment of spirits, the wisdom that they need to negotiate these things well. And as they do this, you watch them grow together individually, they grow spiritually, but their marriage grows uh, deeper and deeper on the spiritual level. So that's the focus of that book. The other question that you've asked is, here is a man and a woman who are getting to know each other pretty deeply. And the question is there, is God calling us to marriage? And how do they know? Well, the deepest root of that is something that St. John Paul II said over and over again. Think, for example, of his theology of the body. And this is said very clearly in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 1603. The vocation to marriage is written into the very nature of man and woman as they come from the hand of God which is to say, if you have a man and a woman who are people of faith, they love the Lord. Again, the just one falls seven times a day, scripture says, and we all ask God's forgiveness at the beginning of every mass and there's a sacrament of confession. But I mean, sincerely don't want anything that 
would harm their relationship with God don't want to live a sinful life and are sincerely seeking to love the Lord and live according to the teaching of the Lord Jesus. And uh, let me focus on the man since we spoke about the women just before. <laughs> so, uh, but it'll be the same for both, but so that I don't have to keep repeating both. Here is a man who is, as I say, a faithful Catholic, esteems the priesthood, but has never personally felt any real attraction to that. There's just never been anywhere in him a sense that God might be calling him to that and does feel very much the attraction toward marriage and is dating, we'll say now, with a very clear sense that he wants to know whether God may be calling him to marriage with this woman. In that case, there's no need to discern the call to marriage because it's just the call that is written into our very human nature as God created us as men and women, as the, uh, as the catechism says. Now, there are a number of things to do, but the call itself to marriage is very clear in that kind of situation. I think just to put some flesh on it, my own father was raised in a, a solid Catholic family, part of the parish, served as a young boy and so forth. And uh, his faith was very central to his life, felt a very high uh, esteem for priesthood, but never personally ever felt the call to it and did know very much that he wanted to be married. And when he met my mom after two years of dating, they were married, had a wonderful Catholic family. In that kind of situation, it's good for the person to learn more about the church's teaching of marriage so that the person will understand the vocation more and more deeply. And again, John Paul II is just a wonderful uh, resource on this. The person would be called to grow in his or her spiritual life, to deepen the relationship with God, maybe to learn more about prayer, to get closer to the sacraments in the church, do things like spiritual reading, go on a retreat, all of these things that can help us grow uh, spiritually. If there's just psychological woundedness on a certain level, if I may say it reverently, maybe there was a divorce in his parents' family, and that hurts, and there are consequences of that. Maybe there are ways to work with that even before marriage, uh, just to grow in human maturity. It might involve counseling or various uh, ways of, of being helped. So the man or woman in this situation has a number of things to do to grow into that vocation so as to live it more deeply. Obviously, the dating process or would all be part of this. But the call itself to marriage is clear in that case. Now, if you have a person in the situation that I've described who feels that call toward marriage, and of course we all do, because that's built right into us as we come from God as men and women, but also feels an attraction toward priesthood or if the woman to be a religious sister then we have a different issue of discernment. Now there is a vocational discernment itself. The discernment is not, as in the first case, is this the person that God has chosen for me? But here the question is, is God calling me to the vocation built into my nature as a man or woman, the vocation toward marriage? Or here is this other attraction. Is that a sign that God is calling me to a life of consecration? consecrated celibacy or chastity and to serve him in that way. When a person feels both attractions, that's when the kind of discernment Ignatius talks about and vocational discernment becomes important. Not saying a lot. I hope, hope that's clear enough. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. And in my personal experience, I definitely found it necessary at that point to seek the help of really multiple people to help form me to discern those movements. It got so hard for me to do that on my own. So I'm grateful I had the people available to me. Yes, I would say that if a person is facing that discernment, is God calling me to marriage or is God calling me 
to the consecrated life as a priest or as a religious sister, then it would be invaluable to get spiritual direction, at least during that time of discernment, if not in an ongoing way, but at least during that time. You know, I'll go back to my own experience. I had had this thought about priesthood for a long time, and I'd never said anything to anyone. And it was finally uh, when I was a senior in high school that my mom asked me the question, you know, you've got to decide what you're going to do next year. You're going to go to college or what you're going to do. And that was the first time that I ever said, I think I'd like to be a priest. And she said the best thing she could have ever said to me. I'm still grateful to her for it. She said, if that's the case, you should speak with our pastor. It was that conversation with my pastor that really set things moving. It's the difference between just being alone with a sense that maybe this is what God's asking And now in conversation with a competent person, that's when the process really moved forward. It's so funny how valuable referrals can be, because we started this conversation talking about how Ignatius was passing on existing elements of the tradition, like you mentioned from Evagrius or St. John Cashin. And now you're talking about your mom kind of pointing to somebody else to help pass this on to you. Sure. It's a key principle, I'd say, that if we're facing this kind of discernment, now, as we said before, accompaniment is always valuable in the spiritual life in any circumstance. Of Ignatius's 14 rules, in fact, this is his 13th. He's speaking about if you're uh, feeling the burdens uh, of the one he calls the enemy, don't be alone with them. Find a wise, competent, spiritual person and talk about it. But I would say, uh, above all, in a time of vocational discernment, it makes all the difference to be accompanied. So that's a good thing. I'll, I'll quote to you from Pope Benedict XVI, to advance in the spiritual life, we always have need of a guide. We cannot do it just with our own reflections. And finding that guide is part of the ecclesial dimension of the spiritual life. But it's said about as clearly as you can say it, to advance, we always have need of a guide. Wonderful thing to have it. I will say, though, you know, we are really blessed today. There is such a proliferation of digital resources and books and so forth on this that we can find a lot of help there. That does not replace the need for and the benefit of a spiritual guide in that one-on-one relationship. But there's a lot out there now that can be very helpful. Well, wonderful. Father Gallagher, I think that just about does it. Thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything you'd uh, like to add for our listeners? I guess if I could only say one thing about discernment, then I would say pray, because there really is no discernment without prayer. We've talked about a very important element, and that is being accompanied. But even if we're accompanied, the accompaniment will be fruitful on the basis of our prayer. If you need light in a discernment, then The closer you can get to Christ, who is the light, the more light you'll have in your discernment. So get close to the Eucharist, maybe closer than you've ever been before. Pray with scripture. Do spiritual reading. Can you make a one-day or weekend or five-day retreat along the way in a setting that's helpful for you? Whatever helps to grow in prayer is going to bless the discernment. So I'll just leave us with that thought. Thank you, Father. And we'll be sure to have links to those resources that you mentioned. Definitely the books, Discernment of Spirits, Setting Captives Free, Discernment of Spirits in Marriage, and also for uh, the Discerning Hearts app as well. That sounds great. Well, have we done what you hoped we'd do? (laughs) I think so. Yeah, we've at least started. So thank you for getting us rolling in the right direction. We really Mm -hmm. appreciate it, Father Gallagher. Yeah, very happy to do it. And now for part two of our Prince of Egypt chat with Kara Bach. 
maybe a good point of transition. When Moses isn't sure who he is, he still thinks he's Pharaoh's son. He's not 100% sure he's starting to question it. I think he talks to his adoptive mother, the queen of Egypt, and she says, you know, you're, you've been chosen by the gods. Don't ask why. And this is like a competing narrative of being chosen with how he is eventually chosen. Because when he is chosen by the actual God, he does ask why. He does ask further questions. And God entertains those questions because the real God is a God of truth and wants you to dig deeper. He wants you to learn who he is and who you are and why he's asking you to do what he is asking you to do. Unlike the gods of Egypt, which I thought was a really cool contrast. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, it was I sort of found her acceptance of a gift to be almost, you know, Teresa of Lisieux simplicity that felt admirable. You kind of were gifted to me. Who am I to reject such a gift? Yeah. So, you know, if you think about the queen as sort of, she doesn't have the revelation, but she's doing her best and she's accepting, you know, Moses from whatever. And it doesn't have to be any particular god of Egypt. You know, it's not like Horus or Ra or whoever. Mm -hmm. But she just believes that there was a higher source for this gift that is Moses. Then fine. Yeah, I think that's that's a healthy outlook. I will say I, I went back and looked at the biblical text. I was like, what was the real thing there? And even in the the biblical story, it's very interesting that you know, it was obvious that he was a Hebrew child who was trying to escape the the purge, if you will. Yeah. And is it Pharaoh's sister who actually is the one who... I think it's Pharaoh's daughter. Oh, that's it. Yeah, you're right. Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter. In this movie, it's Pharaoh's wife, but I think in Exodus, it's Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah. So it's one of those where like, she knows that it's a Hebrew child. I think they don't make that as clear in this movie. And I think yeah. it's interesting that just the, the kind of mercy of the Egyptian women as opposed to... The obvious cruelty of the men. Who, you know, have moments in the movie of reflection, and they think, now, it was a good idea. They're just slaves. We should kill their sons. Yeah, many times, many times in which they are dehumanized. Yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's like for a point, so. What'd you think of how they did the voice of God in the burning bush in this movie? It was all the actors, but the way they mixed the sound, it was primarily the same actor, Val Kilmer, who voices Moses. Oh, it was more than one voice. That's interesting. It was, but you you mostly hear just Val Kilmer. I didn't really have a strong opinion about it. What did you think? I was kind of like, I felt like the whole the whole Burning Bush scene for me was kind of like, meh. I think that's fair. It feels like a very 90s choice to me to have the voice of God sound like, not just speak to you in a way that you understand, which is good. That's very incarnational. We like that. But to speak to you with your voice that sounds like you is walking mm. a fine line. I don't know. I think it's okay, but. It didn't strike me as like it sounded exactly like Moses. So it didn't quite feel like that. The performance is definitely different. Like Val Kilmer is voicing a different character. Yeah. I will say I have been to St. Catherine's there at the foot of Mount Sinai. and Oh, really? I've done the Sinai hike wow. in the middle of the night, which is awesome. Highly recommend. And... I was a little confused by the whole, like, why is this in a cavern? It's, like, in the middle of the desert. It's, like, wide open. <laughs> oh, really? The whole thing felt a little, like, like eh, okay, I guess I guess I understand the, like, you're following some instinct. I mean, you know, it's in, in theory, the burning bush is, like, on the inside of this, uh, or the location of the bu- burning bush is inside of the walls of St. Catherine's there. But 
That was the most distracting part for me. I was like, I'm pretty sure it's not like a cavernous area. (laughs) I'd have to go look that up. But certainly the place where they have put the modern day marker for where the burning bush was does not look like that. (laughs) One interesting detail that I read in the trivia is that, you know, God tells Moses to take his shoes off because he's on holy ground. In the movie, he's barefoot for the rest of the movie. Like he goes back to Egypt, he's, you know, the plagues happen, he leads the Hebrews out of Egypt. He's barefoot for all of that. I missed that. Oh, that's a cool, that's a good, very nice detail. Which is another creative choice from the movie makers and not necessarily in scripture or anything. Yeah. But just an interesting touch, like Moses is permanently changed by this experience. Okay, here's an Hebrew word. I don't know it, but I came across it. Tanin. I don't know how to say it. It's spelled like tannin, and it is the word that is used when Moses' staff, you know, he goes before Pharaoh. Actually, in Exodus, it's Aaron's staff turns into a serpent. So it's the word that's used for serpent, Ah. which can be translated also as crocodile. So when the staffs are duking it out and they turn into serpents and Aaron's serpent eats the Egyptian sorcerer's serpents, like those could be crocodiles in Exodus. Obviously, in the movie, they go with snakes. But, <laughs> or maybe it's a large snake eating the crocodiles. Yeah, right. Exactly. Are these all considered the same thing? Well, you know, dragon was how it was translated into Greek, like dracon. And even then, like in Greek, dracon is lizard or whatever. Like, there's oh. a, there's a lot of ambiguity there. So, in the same way that in Genesis, like the fruit of the tree of good and evil. It's not definitely supposed to be an apple, and in fact, it probably was not an apple. I think scripture is similarly noncommittal here, not necessarily Mm. saying that it was definitely a snake. It's a reptile of some kind. Did you ever watch the the robots that used to fight each other? Battlebots? What show was that? Battlebots? I'm like (laughs) imagining like the alligator version of Battlebots, or sorry, crocodile (laughs) version of Battlebots. Battlecrocs. So... Crocodiles had religious significance for the Egyptians. They had a, a god who was sometimes depicted with a crocodile head, whose name was Sobek. And they, the Egyptians had a city which was dedicated to, I think, this god, which was... Tra- the name for the city was translated into Greek as Crocodileopolis, which is nice. incredible. So, yeah, I hope they had battle crocs in Crocodileopolis. <laughs> I can't believe that hasn't been uh, co-opted into something in popular culture. That would make a great Saturday morning cro- cartoon. Mm, there we go. Well, I think this is as good a time as any to segue to another light topic, the death of the firstborns. Indeed, light. <laughs> In the second half of the movie especially, there's really not much to hold kids' attention. So maybe that's why this movie hasn't really had much of a lasting footprint on the culture. Because like, it's not like Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast where you know everybody's nostalgic about it because they grew up with it. Not many people grew up with Prince of Egypt just because it's not a fun watch. For kids. For kids. <laughs> Another area where it doesn't pull punches is the plagues. They show Moses turning the Nile to blood. And actually, there's this really cool shot. I'm going to do Film Geek again, where he turns the Nile to blood. Pharaoh is on a boat passing by with his magicians. And they say, oh, yeah, we can do that, too, where they like take some red powder and they put it in a bowl of water and the water turns sort of red. And then you mm-hmm. cut back to the river and you see it's like this very rich, dark shade of red which is meant very clearly to be blood, except where Moses is standing in the river. I noticed this, yeah. Well, around him, it's not. It's still like water. It's still clear. And they don't draw attention to it. That's just how it is. I thought that was a neat choice. I mean, especially because in Exodus, 
there's a lot more information about the fact that all of the water is turned to blood. It's not just the Nile. And so that was part of the crying out of the Egyptians to Pharaoh because they were essentially dying of thirst. There was like, there was no water. And so the idea that like Moses still had water available to the Israelites is... It was a nice, nice little like visual there without like getting into all of the details of each of the plagues. Yeah, which scripture does go into way more detail. Whereas here, it okay, maybe they do half pull a punch because it's sort of distilled into a big montage mm-hmm. where scripture devotes attention to the frogs and the boils and sores mm-hmm. and, you know, the locusts. Whereas here you see the frogs and, you know, and then they're gone. Mm-hmm. And that culminates, obviously, everybody knows this, in the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn and the institution of Passover. The movie does a really interesting thing where it has this mural in, I think, the palace, which depicts the massacre of the Hebrew children when, from when Moses was a baby, when they were all being thrown into the Nile that Moses was saved from. And you see all these kids being tossed into the river, basically, sort of like kind of like a waterfall of babies. And when Moses is seeing this for the first time, when he's still in the palace as a prince, the babies look like they're sort of falling on top of where he's standing. They revisit that location later in the movie, except it's not Moses standing in that spot. It's Ramses' son, the would-be future pharaoh, who's still a boy in this movie and in the story. Which is a very heavy bit of foreshadowing that this kid is not going to make it out of the story because he's going to suffer this plague because of Ramses' hardness of heart. It's really tough, and the movie does not sugarcoat it. It's not graphic about it, but they show one kid actually dying, basically, like having the breath of life taken. It's ambiguous enough because mm-hmm. the kid's the kid's asleep while it happens. But a minute later, you see Pharaoh's son carrying like a jar into another room and he goes through a doorway and you don't see him anymore. But then you hear the jar break and you see Mm -hmm. his limp hand coming out the doorway and it's pretty clear what's going on to adult audiences. So the movie's serious about it. It's not saying, oh, and the Hebrews got away and they all lived happily ever after. There's a real cost to the plagues. And it's another angle of what we were talking about earlier with the fatherhood angle, which is Mm -hmm. just the horrendous cost that every parent feels, whether they lose their children or not, just the the fear of losing their children. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's much worse for the parents that actually have to go through this. I think there's a way that scripture does make sense of this, which I'm not the first one to say it, but, you know, is this just senseless suffering? Like, you know, it's Ramses' fault, but couldn't God have picked some other plague to... Right, like why pick this and why did he allow it? Right. So each of the plagues, again, I'm not the first one to say this stuff, but each of the plagues is directed towards some image or idol that Egypt has. You know, they have a frog god, the darkening of the sun, they have a sun god that, you know, they worship the Nile, etc. Or they, they have gods that are, that have these things as their patrons, if nothing else. So each of the plagues is meant to challenge the notion that these Egyptian gods are superior and to show that the god of the Hebrews actually has power over all of these things. Mm-hmm. The plagues aren't just there to punish Egypt and to punish Pharaoh, but they're there to demonstrate something about who God is. And that also holds with the 10th plague. Exodus twelve twelve even says that the 10th plague is a judgment on all the gods of Egypt because the firstborn was itself a god of Egypt, the future Pharaoh. Pharaoh's firstborn son was going to become Pharaoh someday and was going to be worshipped 
as a god. But the interesting thing about the firstborn is there is a firstborn who is God, who also suffers, who Mm -hmm. also dies. And scripture in Psalm 89 and Colossians 1, 15 to 18 describes Jesus Christ as the firstborn son, not born in the same sense that we are born, but also in the same sense in his human nature. But there's a reason they describe Jesus that way, and it's to connect him to the firstborns and to show that when they die, he dies, and that even the Hebrews aren't really spared. Because in the Passover, mm-hmm. they're spreading the, the lamb's blood on the doorposts and the lintels. Jesus is also identified with the Passover lamb. So they're participating in it through the blood of the Passover lamb. The firstborns are participating in it because in the sense of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation. So it makes sense only because Jesus is eventually going to suffer the same fate for all of us, for Pharaoh's sin, for our sins, for yours and mine. So all of this is eventually fulfilled in the blood of the new covenant, which is not something the movie makes explicit by any means. It doesn't address fulfillment in the new covenant at all. I just thought it was necessary because the 10th plague is one of the hardest things to read in all the Bible. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me a lot of in Genesis when Abraham and Isaac are going up to the mountain. And you know, I think another one where like, this is not anything, I'm not like saying something new, but you know, it's commonly known that Isaac was an adult and fully participated in preparing his own funeral pyre, right? Like, yeah. you know, Abraham is this really old guy. Isaac is ostensibly like in his 30s. He's not, you know, a kid. He's the one who is probably helping his father and like being willing to be sacrificed as, you know, a prototype of Christ as well. So yeah. there's a lot of, I mean, this is kind of the the sort of typical stuff that like Christians point to as evidence of salvation history, but that doesn't take away from the Jewish peoples obviously also have, have this as their sacred scripture, right. whether or not they have converted. Right. And they would, they would certainly not interpret it this way at all. I don't think, right. you know, they with plenty of good reason see themselves as being spared of the 10th plague in the way that the Egyptians were not spared, which is definitely in a temporal sense, true. Like they, they kept their firstborns, but in a larger cosmic sense, in the span of salvation history, nobody's spared at the end of the day because we all participate in the death of Jesus who is present in the Passover and Exodus, but also offers a way out to all of us, Jew, Egyptian, Christian alike. So when Isaac in the episode that you mentioned, Kara, asks Abraham on Mount Moriah, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? We never actually get a lamb in that episode. But Abraham's son is spared, and instead this placeholder ram is sacrificed. Later in Exodus, when God institutes the Passover sacrifice of the lambs, we get a version of it expanded to cover not just Abraham's son, but the firstborns of his descendants, the Hebrews, marked by the blood of the lambs on the doorways. When Jews celebrated Passover after that, lambs would be sacrificed at the temple in Jerusalem, which was actually believed to be on the same mountain where Isaac asked, where is the lamb? And now there are all these lambs being sacrificed there. And Jews believed that in order to actually celebrate Passover, each person had to actually eat the lamb's flesh and had to regard himself as actually having experienced the original Passover himself. So actually being in slavery in Egypt, actually celebrating the first Passover, actually walking through the Red Sea, and actually being liberated. No matter how many centuries later, he was quote-unquote remembering it. And this is a special type of remembering. 
So finally, John the Baptist comes along centuries later, sees Jesus, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So when Jesus at Passover gives us his body and blood to eat and drink and says, Do this in remembrance of me, it's in that same framework, that same kind of, that special kind of remembering, but elevated. It's not just an ordinary lamb delivering us from the 10th plague and liberating us from Egypt. It's the lamb of God delivering us from death and the liberation from sin. That's what we mean when we say the mass or the last supper or the new covenant is the fulfillment of Passover. Thanks be to God for the blood of the new covenant. <laughs> Amen. Again, like extra biblical, but I enjoyed the light romance narrative as well. The like, oh, she he let her go and... You know, she's this like strong-willed woman and I feel like there's a lot of, you know, strong-willed women in the Old Testament. So that felt like a nice little nod to Moses' wife. Yeah, they're definitely being creative there. They're getting creative with the material, but not in a way that contradicted the text. <laughs> yeah. It was cute. This I'll slot this into like, you know, still appropriately 90s girl power kind of <laughs> narrative. But, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a product of the 90s, so I'm here for it. <laughs> So the movie ends with actually the same musical number that it starts with, Deliver Us, where the it's sort of the Hebrews crying out to God for mercy and deliverance from slavery in the beginning. But they use that song at the end where it ends with Moses carrying the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai, which was Steven Spielberg's idea, incidentally, to have the movie end on that note. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering where it was going to end, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, I like that. That was a nice, that was a nice poignant spot. Yeah, that's where I think probably all the Ten Commandment movies struggle is, okay, where do we stop? We can't keep telling this story. It goes on too long. So yeah, they just, they show Moses carrying the Ten Commandments down and the, you know, the camera pans up over the, the nation of Israel now camped at the base of the mountain. What they don't show is the golden calf, which is right there. <laughs> Because that's what happens next in Exodus is while Moses has been gone, the Hebrews have worshipped the golden calf in his absence. And so I think the deliver us is meant to be a very subtle hint that, okay, they've left slavery and they're better for it now. But there is a new kind of slavery that they have sold themselves back into and that Moses is, has gone through this very meaningful change. But the Hebrews still have this problem, mm. which... Obviously, if you keep reading the Pentateuch, if you keep reading Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you're going to see they, they want to go back to Egypt, which doesn't work for the movie because, right, like what was... What was the point? Yeah, what was the point? In a two-hour movie, if, if you have that, what was the point of going through all those all those musical numbers? <laughs> Whereas, you know, scripture has more time to tell a more complex story. But I thought that was an interesting creative choice, which kids certainly would not pick up on, which I don't think I picked up on, you know, the first couple times I saw this, saying, hey, there's still a need. The covenant is incomplete. The salvation mm -hmm. history is incomplete. So even though it's not explicitly calling out for Christ, at least implicitly there. Wait, so just a point of clarity, yeah. since again, I only saw this once. Yeah. Is the calf actually like visible or it's no. just... You know that that's what's next. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, you just Sweet. know if you have the if you have Exodus open to follow along with the you know the events as they're transpiring, that's the next thing that is going to happen. It's and it's like the first thing that is not shown. Mm -hmm. But no, they don't they don't actually show it in the movie. I think Moses is blocking it. Right? You see the back of his head, and if you could see through him, you would see further down there. You would see the golden calf. 
And you would see the expression on Moses' face. Like, what happened while I was gone? Uh, so it's like, like ah, uh, there is a subtle hint of like, a new challenge begins. Since we know that there's like 40 years in the desert. So Moses is thinking, why did I sing all those musical numbers? <laughs> All right. Well, I think we can leave it there. We've had a we've had a long journey. Please see this movie. We don't endorse every movie, and Kara, you know, I'm not saying you have to endorse this one either. <laughs> but uh, me personally, I I think it's extremely worthwhile. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I I mean, let's be real. A lot of Christian biblical quote unquote media is pretty bad, and this one was was great. <laughs> so it's. <laughs> I feel like that's a big win. Just the fact that it's like, I could just show this to pretty much anybody. And it's like, that was highly entertaining. Mm-hmm. The quality was great. I mean, it's a DreamWorks movie. So obviously it's not like some fly-by-night kind of operation. But And among DreamWorks movies, forget about the content for a second. It has way higher artistic merit than any other DreamWorks movie, too. <laughs> it definitely has like a really unique look to it. It kind of it reminded me a little bit of um, Sleeping Beauty and just kind of having a very unique look that is unlike you know most of the others of their canon. With like kind of the sharpness of how everybody's drawn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to tell your friends and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you. <laughs>